Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks, the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume in New York in September of this year, but that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to bring you the latest episode of our digital asset series uh, with Jack Maulers. If you're in the Bitcoin space, obviously he's a name uh, that needs no introduction. Uh, your name has been everywhere recently, Jack. Uh, but if you're not in the Bitcoin space, I think you'll hear his name pretty soon uh, with things that are going on around the world. Uh, but Jack is the chief executive officer and founder of Zap, which is a Bitcoin investment and payments company that transacts over the Lightning Network. Zap is perhaps most famous uh, for its Strike app, which uh, the app is being used in El Salvador, as El Salvador recently announced that it is making Bitcoin legal tender, uh, the first country to do so. Jack sort of led that initiative with the president of El Salvador. Now the Strike app is being rolled out across the country to enable uh, Bitcoin payments. Uh, he also was the driving force behind the Bitcoin car in the Indy 500. Uh, he has the Bitcoin racing team hat on there. Uh, the number 21 Chevrolet was branded uh, all Bitcoin, Ed Carpenter's uh, racing team. So that was an awesome uh, uh, incident for, for the Bitcoin community as well. So Jack, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, hosting today's talk is Brett Messing, who's the uh, president and chief operating officer of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm with also a significant stack of Satoshis uh, in our investment funds. Uh, and Brett, I'll turn it over to you for the interview. Thanks, John. Hey, Jack, thanks so much. Really happy to have you here. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan, first and foremost. I, I think you guys do tremendous work, and uh, I'm very excited that you're Bitcoiners now. So I'm happy to be here. Let's go, baby. We are Bitcoiners. So I, 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 we're going to talk a lot about El Salvador, but I, I want to tell you about my Jack Mahler's journey. So everyone is brought into Bitcoin by their own Bitcoin Sherpa. And, you know, I'm a Goldman Sachs alum and there, there are a bunch of early OG Bitcoiners like Pete Brigger, Mike Novogratz, Dan Moorhead, and, and they helped me as, as, as well as Ross Stevens, who we, we were talking about before we, we got going. But in the fall, I think it was, I was listening to you on a podcast with Peter McCormick and you were describing how you and your company were going to address the remittance market. And in a prior life, I was actually deputy mayor of LA and, and remittance is a big issue in, in LA, of course. There's very little a city can do, but we did whatever we could do to protect the residents from sort of getting fleeced while um, sending money home. But anyway, I listened to you and Peter and I got off and my takeaway was, if this kid, sorry, I'm old enough to be your dad, so I say it, 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 it it's, it's with love, like, if this kid can actually do this, Bitcoin is so much bigger than I imagined it was. And I called up Pete Brigger and Ross Stevens and basically said that to him. And Ross said to him, Pete didn't know. Ross is like, yes, he can. So let's start there. And I, I, you know, I, don't, I guess we could send people to Peter McCormick's podcast, but that's, that, you know, that's his content. This is our content. Can you talk about how you guys use the Lightning Network um, basically to address the remittance market? Because it, it, it really is a massive use case for Bitcoin that I think people don't understand. I didn't. Yeah, 
Um, and I, I think how we're using the Lightning Network and whether it's cross-border payments or just consumer merchant payments and questioning interchange, for example, uh, goes back to visiting monetary networks as a, as a general concept. Um, so Bitcoin is traditionally associated with slow payments, slow transaction times, not a lot of throughput. And that's why it's slow and inefficient and can never be used as a currency. That's kind of like the mainstream headline that everyone's familiar with over the last decade. Well, the Lightning Network is a protocol that sits on top of Bitcoin. And you don't need to know all the cryptography and all the fanciness. Um, but really smart people, arguably the smartest people in the world, uh, set out to solve two things on the Bitcoin network. It was one, uh, the variable amount of time it takes to achieve finality in a Bitcoin payment. And then two, the variable cost that it takes to achieve finality with a Bitcoin payment. And if we were able to solve the variable time and the variable cost, and we we're able to give instant and relatively free transaction finality, cash finality to this monetary network, it would be arguably the, the biggest step forward in money as a technology in human history and the best monetary network of all time in human history. And so that's kind of an introduction to the Lightning Network is what it enables, it works, we did it. And what it enables is instant and nearly free and sometimes absolutely free Bitcoin transactions. And so if you encompass that with what Bitcoin is, now you have an open monetary network that operates 24 seven. You have a digital bearing instrument that carries the sufficient liquidity profile in every single currency you could ever dream of, three, 365, 24 seven, and you can move physical value, no sense of credit, no balance sheet float, real hard value anywhere in the world at any time uh, at any place. And so the thesis that we hold at Strike is, well, let's take a look at other monetary networks, monetary networks that exist today to allow us to exist financially. Uh, the Square monetary network, the PayPal monetary network, the Visa monetary network. All these monetary networks achieve similar things, right? They define identity, like what's the difference between my Visa card and your Visa card? Uh, they define payment standards. How do I send a payment? How do I receive a payment? They define credit and debt and finality and clearance. And so if you think of Bitcoin and the Lightning Network as a monetary network of its own, uh, it does all those things, except way better, except way cheaper, except way faster. Oh, and by the way, it's more inclusive. How well does the PayPal network work in El Salvador? Not very well. How well does the Lightning Network? It works the same in Chicago, works the same in London, works the same in New York, and it works the same in the third world. Uh, it's more inclusive. And then lastly, it's open. And so the fact that it's open means that there's inherent network effects and economies of scale that are unprecedented. Open networks defeat closed networks throughout human history, exclusive of, exclusive of money. And this is the first time we've ever had an open monetary network. And so what that means is that there's millions of people that are working on this network and, and no closed network can ever compete. If you think of Bitcoin as a monetary network and PayPal as a monetary network, who has more employees? Who has more salespeople on Twitter? Who has more merchants subscribing? How many MIT professors are working on cryptography for the PayPal monetary network? Zero. How many are working on Bitcoin? A lot. And so for all of those reasons, we subscribe heavily to the concept that this monetary network is going to dematerialize the existing monetary networks that exist today. Uh, and the first killer app, in my opinion, was cross-border payments because the inefficiencies are just absolutely absurd. Uh, it's the most outdated, uh, uh, expired like it's an expired carton of milk. I mean, it's two to 10 intermediaries to make a cross-border payment. It takes two to 10 days and fees are upwards of 50% because there is no 
open. It isn't a race to bottom. Uh, the market is not efficient, and uh, people, especially in the third world, get relatively abused by financial inclusion and and fees and such. And so, first order of business once uh, we got everything stood up was make cross border payments free and instant. So that is the end of my rant, and uh, we'll go wherever you want from there. All right. So he, here's a thing that you said that that sort of blew me away, and so maybe you can you, you can expound on this. Is and I'll just make it very personal. I want to send money to a friend in Mexico City. He wants pesos. And what I understood you said is, I can take my dollars and they get converted to Bitcoin. They get, and, and I'm going to use a very highly technical term, zapped on the Lightning Network to Mexico City, where they are converted. There's a Bitcoin to, to Mexican pesos transaction. And my friend now has, you know, I sent 50 bucks, right? Neither of us wanted really anything to do with Bitcoin, right? But Bitcoin facilitated this transfer of value. Um, and I think that's incredible. So I don't know if I described that right. If I did, or, you know, if you can just speak to that, I think, I think it, um, you know, sort of putting into real practical terms, these, these, mm -hmm. these sort of, you know, majestic concepts that you, that you laid out, I, I, I think will move people. Yeah. And so our product strike, which was referenced in the intro, uh, we divide Bitcoin, the asset. So this is the asset that's 21 million coins. Its issuance is known. Its monetary policy is defended in a distributed network of cyber hornets, as Michael Saylor likes to say. And then there's the monetary network. And the monetary network, you could do away. What if it's 22 million coins? What if it's 2.1 million coins? The network doesn't necessarily care, right? What if the monetary policy is blocks every 20 minutes instead of every 10 minutes? The monetary network achieves similar things and enhances what existing monetary networks do. And so our approach is, can we enable people to benefit from this amazing monetary network, this absolute revolution in money as a technology without being uh, encumbered by Bitcoin, the asset? Bitcoin, the asset is taxes property. Bitcoin, the asset carries a lot of volatility. Bitcoin, the asset is really accounting tough accounting pains. Uh, people also aren't incentivized hey, to spend Jack, it. I'm wearing a Bitcoin hat. Don't pee all over Bitcoin. Come on, man. Well, the point is people aren't even incentivized to spend it, right? I mean, if I just hold the thing, I get wealthier. So why would I actually use it? So there had to have been a way to build an experience for consumers that they're traditionally used to. Link your bank account, scan a QR code, hit send, but use this new novel monetary network under the hood. And so to delve into your example, that is exactly correct. If I want to send $100 to Ireland received as euros, what the software does is it takes $100 out of my Chase debit account. Uh, it's going to convert it into Bitcoin. It's going to zip, or would you say zap the money on the Lightning Network over an ocean, across a border, real physical value where it will land in Ireland and interface with counterparties to give it the BTC EUR liquidity profile to switch it back into euros and credit the user. And so what's happening is we're using the most efficient monetary network on the planet to ask for a physical value. We get cash finality on an open system instantly and at no cost. And then we're using this new digital bear instrument, this new digital property in cyberspace space. It's the most hardworking asset on the planet. It works 24 seven. No other asset does that. And it has the liquidity profile of every currency ever. And so once we escrow the value on the network and we have this magical asset parked, then we just exchange it for the goods and services with the various counterparties that can. 
And so not only is that enable amazing things, but also think about like working capital costs, like what's transfer wise working capital costs versus a Bitcoin infrastructure set. I mean, it's the most magical, impressive thing that's happened across border payments, I think. I mean, long before I was born. Um, so is this now operational? Like, so how many people are doing what we just described, right? And I guess let's make it very personal again. Can I do this? In other words, is it functional for me to use in some way or are we sort of, you know, beta testing it in a more limited way? Like you just give me sort of state of the union, if you will. Yeah, so beta testing in, in Europe now, we plan to be in over a hundred countries within this calendar year. And the first pilot that made the most sense to me was El Salvador which ended up becoming something much larger than uh, a beta for cross-border payments. But the thesis was here you have a country that operates on the dollar. Uh, they don't have a nation state currency anymore. Over 20% of the country's GDP is in remittance. It's how capital's influx into the economy. However, fees can be upwards to 50%. And there's a very important insight on that. If I send a million dollars to El Salvador, is Western Union gonna take 500 grand? No, fees aren't 50% on a million dollars, fees are 50% on 10 bucks, on a hundred bucks, because there are fixed costs associated with the legacy financial system. And so not only does this monetary network allow for free and instant, but it also opens a new economy of micro cross-border payments for those that have $300 a month of income and that they don't send a million dollars back home, they send a hundred dollars back home a month. And so it made all the sense in the world to enable a cross-border micropayment economy that was free and instant. And really, I was going, I planned on improving the GDP of the country by launching my product. And so that is highly functional. We're onboarding 20,000 Salvadorians a day, uh, seeing tremendous amount of success. And uh, now we're going to launch in Europe. But Jack, you need to get people on both ends, right? So the, the Salvadorians, right, have to have to right sign up but you know their family members or friends or whomever is sending them money in the united states need to do likewise um how does that i mean if you get the salvadorians do they just tell their you know their family member you know you need to get this app this is a better way to send me the money just can you just can you just talk about that rollout yeah well i mean it's the best customer acquisition tool in the world the family phones them and says, hey, listen, remember how you used to send $100 and I'd bust six hours to Western Union and Western Union would only give me 70 and then I'd owe another 30 to the gangs that sit outside and threaten my life. So I come home with half of it and it's a day's worth of chores and I have to skip work every single month to go collect remains. Well, download this app link your bank account or fund it with cash collateral. And I get the remittance instantly to my cell phone from the comfort of my home and you send a hundred, I keep all hundred. And so that customer acquisition tool, I don't need any marketing. I mean, what the heck? Get, get out of here. I mean, that's just bread butter right there. Uh, but the other important thing about this is it's an open network. So if someone has a Coinbase account, they can interface with our service. If someone has a Square account, if someone has a Kraken account, Millions of wallets, the beautiful thing on an open network is there's a singular open source standard. And once you implement it, you are plugged into the open monetary network and all the services and nodes and networks that live within it. And so, yeah, sure, I would love them to be on strike because I think it's arguably the best service on top of this open system, but they don't have to be. And that's amazing. So what initially in the pilot, it was how are we going to get these people liquid and exchange in and out? There's no Salvadorian Bitcoin exchange, but there are Bitcoin ATMs everywhere. 
And so people would collect these remittance, we'd store it, and then they'd go to the ATMs and they'd cash out. And the question is, what, uh, did I install strike ATMs all over El Salvador? No, there's no strike network. There's no strike ATM. I'm on the Bitcoin network. This is a Bitcoin ATM. And that's a power of the open monetary system is that I benefit from other people's work. And so out, out the gate, the product worked fabulously. And then now as, as more services build and, and integrate and are interoperable with the open network, the network effects and economies of scale, you just can't compete with that. Because if PayPal tried to compete with that, they'd have to hire thousands of new employees. I didn't hire anybody. You know, so so the the out the remittance gets sent to El Salvador, but if I'm if I'm right, the, the receiver is receiving USD, right? Correct. Right. So they don't they, they don't have to worry about you know going to a Bitcoin ATM. They're getting hit with the US dollars in their bank account. Yeah, both the sender and the receiver can just interface with fiat currency, and they don't even a, a lot of our users, arguably majority, have no idea that Bitcoin or any of this cryptography is involved in the efficiencies we're delivering. For for a lot of them, they just see as like, oh wow, innovation fr- finally for remittances. Finally, I can receive it safely and not get bullied into fees. <laughs> um, I, I want to spend a lot more time in El Salvador. One more question though, just just to, in, in, to make sure I'm understanding our audience as well. So in the U.S., we have this sort of layered financial system, right? The Federal Reserve is on the bottom. Then we have commercial banks that can go to the Fed window, right? PayPal sits on top of the commercial banks. Uh, should be Visa sits on top of the commercial banks. PayPal sits on top of Visa. The Lightning Network, right, which is which is is how you're making this magic happen, is sort of layered two on top of the, the slower, what, what we think of like traditional but super safe. Bitcoin network. Is, is, is that accurate? And do you have anything to add to that? Because I think that's an important concept for people to understand. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and it's also important to note that this isn't a novel concept and this isn't a concept that Bitcoiners came up with, is that protocols scale in layers traditionally, most famously the internet. So you've got HTTP, you've got TCP IP, and you have the internet is actually made up of seven layers. And so that's absolutely correct. You've got the Bitcoin base layer, which optimizes for censorship resistance, decentralization, ultimate security and robustness, and ensuring the consensus rules and monetary policy of the asset. And then you've got the Lightning Network, which comes comprised of different rule sets of this protocol. And once you subscribe to them, they're optimized for cash finality as cheap as possible and as fast as possible. And then on top of that, we sit, we plug into both the Lightning and Bitcoin networks, uh, and we deliver software to people and you know, we as a company have the belief, uh, you know, we can empower economic freedom for everyone. And we want to do that by making these networks uh, as accessible and easy to use as possible. And so we sit on top of them and uh, we build software. Cool. All right. Back to my Jack Mahler's journey. So importantly, Bitcoin is not a security. And, and why is that important? Because there's no insider trading in Bitcoin. So we can all gossip about Bitcoin and no one's going to prison. <laughs> And, and here's why that's important. There are no secrets in Bitcoin. Okay, so if you're plugged into the right text thread or group of people, like, there's just no secrets. So about a month or two, someone told me that Jack Mallers is down in El Salvador and he's helping draft legislation that's going to integrate Bitcoin into the government. And I said, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Like, this is a real country I assume they have some people who went to Harvard and worked at Goldman Sachs who are, you know, or 
They can get someone who's at Stanford Business School or Catherine Hahn from Andreessen Horowitz. And lo and behold, there's a lot of things in Bitcoin where you have to open your mind. It is true. So if you can just tell us the story. Yeah. How did that uh, happen? I'm glad I was wrong, by the way. I'm so happy to have been wrong. So, yeah, no, I'll make it as fast as I can. No, but no, I, take your time. We want you know. <laughs> okay. I mean, so I, I went uh, down to El Salvador. It's very important to give a shout out to the Bitcoin Beach Project. So not only did this country carry the characteristics that embodied that they, they needed help. They needed help from a very high level. They needed help reinstilling basic human freedoms and financial inclusion. Uh, and that the Federal Reserve's monetary expansion, the spillover, was drastically impacting the quality of life and has been for a long time there. Uh, and that over 70% of the country didn't have a bank account. And there was a serious problem with financial inclusion, which ultimately I, I uh, associate under the category of basic human freedom. Uh, and so I needed to go, but there is a project, Bitcoin Beach, and they had started uh, what is a circular Bitcoin economy for those that didn't have bank accounts. Uh, and they were plugging into this open monetary network and achieving financial inclusion through the Bitcoin network. And they deserve all the credit in the world, legends of their time. They'll be remembered forever. And so I went to El Salvador to visit that town. And I wanted to learn and ultimately launch strike and improve on the financial inclusion and human freedom problem of the country. Uh, and so while I was there, uh, we launched the product. I learned a lot. I met a lot of amazing people and got to re really intimately feel the experience that these people were going through. Uh, and then... Uh, we had a lot of success, and I got a message on behalf of the president of the country uh, via Twitter. It was a Twitter DM, uh, and I was at a sushi restaurant, and uh, I didn't think twice about it. I thought it was another spammy message. I get a lot of those. Uh, and then I, I double take, and I, I noticed that it, it's the brother of the president. And I was like, oh, God, okay, this is real. Uh, and I'm sitting with two employees. And I'm like, okay, uh, we're either getting arrested or we're going to make history. And it was very unclear which one. Called my dad. I told him, you know, the president, I asked for a seven-day window to see him. He said, you got 24 hours. And it's like, oh boy. Okay. So, you know, I'm going in to fight for human freedom. I, I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in my truth. So I called my dad. I said, I'll see you on the other side. Wish me luck. Um, but I'm doing this for Bitcoin. I'm doing this for the betterment of humanity. And I went in there. I didn't have a suit. I went in there in a hoodie. It's all I had. And uh, the president's brother came out in a hoodie and uh, we hugged and uh, we started to talk about rebuilding an inclusive financial infrastructure that embodies free markets, that embodies human freedoms. We talked about the design of a country we would want to live in, we would want our kids to live in, and we would want the world to eventually adapt towards. And that the United States and the European Union and a lot of the more developed world uh, was in no position to take such a stride and that El Salvador felt like the perfect opportunity and, and to be brave on behalf of humanity and human freedoms uh, and people that needed help. And that we had an opportunity to do something amazing uh, and it was always about free market. It was always about they, the one quote that they kept saying was, we want people to be themselves, is that by 18 years old, you are societally, society like enforces almost that you take on six figures worth of debt to pursue a degree in something that you don't know you want to do, and that you end up optimizing your life around paying back debt and then going into more debt by the form of a mortgage and, and things like that. And, and that that isn't a great life and that doesn't create a great society because people can't be themselves and can't be free. And so they wanted to build a society that enabled freedom and that 
foundation starts with hard money, with economic opportunity, uh, and with a sound financial and system that's ultimately inclusive and doesn't carry any, any intermediaries that can bully anybody out of anything. Uh, and that was the very ground level discussion. And then over time, we iterated on things and, you know, we talked about everything. We talked about anime, we talked about cartoons, talked about artwork, talked about music, uh, and then how to use Bitcoin to solve two fundamental things is uh, protecting developing countries from the Fed spillover and their monetary expansion, and then improving on developing countries' uh, financial inclusion and giving everyone fundamental financial access and human freedoms that they don't necessarily have when they're born today. Uh, and that is the start of what ended up becoming what you know of. So, so I think mean, that's an amazing story. Um, so where we are today, right, is El Salvador has passed a law to make Bitcoin legal tender, right? And as, as, as most probably aren't aware, I wasn't aware until recently, about 20 years ago, like many emerging nations, we forget how many countries in the world are babies, right? These countries have been around for like less than 70 years, right? The independence movement was in the 50s and the 60s. They, they launched currencies and they, the currencies failed, right? So I think it was in 2003, El Salvador scrapped their currency and the US dollar is their currency, right? So now they're gonna have this dual system. Um, you know, how do you see it? How do they see it operating? Like, so again, what, what, what is the, and, and I know there's, well, I guess we have 81 days until we implement, but, but you know, what does implementation look like of, le of the legal tender law in El Salvador? Yeah, the optimization is around the network and the financial inclusion and the openness of the network and embracing the free market. Uh, it's very important to note there's been some confusion. It's not mandated that people hold Bitcoin, that they long Bitcoin are exposed to volatility and such. Uh, the government, and again, I'm conversing, I want to make it very clear, there's no commercial agreement between the government and strike. Uh, I'm not beholden to anything. I speak my mind. I speak on behalf of myself and my company. And you can think of me as just an advisor to what they're trying to do. And they call me, I give advice, and they are reliant on my expertise and uh, how they see fit. So get that out of the way. And my perception of conversation with the government uh, was uh, it's important to retain the dollar as legal tender for a lot of reasons, one of which is Bitcoin's highly volatile. It's very young. And as an asset, uh, you don't want to forcefully uh, impose custody of savings in your general life quality on top of Bitcoin right now. Uh, if an individual decides to do so, that's Jack, I, just want, I just want to say I might have done that already. But anyway, right. that aside, <laughs> just you know, yeah. put that out there. Me too. Right. It's up. It's up to the individual. The point is that the legal tender law is not imposing that you that decision's made for you on behalf of the government. That's not it at all. What it's about is treating Bitcoin as equivalent to the dollar. So there's one line in the law that's very important, and that you cannot charge premium for things paid in Bitcoin versus a dollar. So if I go and buy a pupusa for $5 and I want to pay in Bitcoin, you can't then charge me 10 because you don't like Bitcoin. It's that it's going to be treated equally as a dollar and that there's an, 
what they wanted to do is expedite interoperability with this open network. They viewed that a large success in empowerment to the country and empowering the free market and empowering this world where people can be themselves and there's ultimate inclusion and there's no intermediaries and all of these amazing things come by being interoperable with this monetary network that is Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. And so the line that everyone's freaking out about is that if you can and have the, te- the capabilities to accept Bitcoin, you need to. It's just an encouragement. You know, a pupusa lady that doesn't have a phone, she's not going to jail because she's not accepting Bitcoin, from my, my understanding. Uh, the, the, it's encouraging interoperability where you need to plug into this open monetary system uh, and speak the language. And so we're working with like the biggest banks. And I, I went to one of the banks and you know, I'm like talking to them like, okay, how do I send money from this bank to the bank down the block? And they're like, you crazy? You can't do that. I'm like, wait, you guys don't have like the AC, equivalent of ACH, automated clearinghouse or anything? They're like, no, you can walk the cash over if you like feel like it. And so we're, we're working with the banks on making them interoperable with the system, with the merchants, with the cash points, with everyone. And it's going to flourish in the network effects, how many independent businesses and services are going to be working on the same open monetary network. And so the government wanted to place premium on the network. Is that if everyone plugs into this network, the economies of scale and network effects are going to elevate us to the promised land. And there's no better power than an open system that a government can enforce or an individual or a rap artist or an NBA basketball player. Open networks and the network effects that come with them are the most powerful thing in human history so far. And so they understand that and they want to place premium that everyone plugs into this thing. And that that is in essence, uh, the legal tender law and the direction the government's going to. And in 81 days, uh, we plug in. We plug in. We start. We start simply, um, and we evolve from there. But we plug in. So, Jack, as I understand it, the government—and correct me if I'm wrong or expound on it—is setting up a 150 million dollar fund so that I own a bar, right in in you know wherever, right, the capital city. I, I really don't want to deal with the Bitcoin. I can somehow like check a box on something. And you come in, you want to buy a beer with Bitcoin. I'm like almost instantaneously swapping my Bitcoin with this to this government fund. They're giving me U.S. dollars, so it's all the same to me. Like I, I, I you know, it, did I describe that properly? And it, that sounds like a pretty complex undertaking to implement. That is it, or is it not? No, because, well, yes, it is complex to implement, but no in the sense that it's already implemented. Because if you take that user story and then we go back to me sending dollars instantly received as euros, it's the same thing. It's allowing cash collateral to make Bitcoin payments and it's allowing Bitcoin payments to be received as cash. And that's the infrastructure and the insight that we've already developed. And so what the government did is hung out with me and talked about comic books and stuff and realized like, wow, Strike empowers the consumer to gain all the benefit of this open monetary network without giving the burden of Bitcoin the asset. If you want a long Bitcoin the asset, if you want to start a fund, go for it. But from a base minimum, we now have technological infrastructure and the insight to give the experience that you show a singular open standard QR code. Millions of apps can scan it. And when they do and the money comes in, you get dollars. That's an amazing experience. That's an irreversible payment. It's an open system. It was free to process. How how much was the interchange on that? 
It's an open network. There's no interchange. There's no visa sitting over my shoulder charging me for clearance. It was free. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And so the government took that concept and said, wait, hold on a second. If we want to be long Bitcoin as a government, uh, we can provide the liquidity. We're not going to make you know, Binance come to this country or Jack stem the liquidity. Let's take that concept and infrastructure and plug it into our reserves. And it was a, it was novel and fascinating and it was great insight on their part. Um, and that's what it is. But it's the same idea of sending dollars that goes into Bitcoin that comes out as euros. It's the same thing as I'm, I'm selling pupusas. I hit $20 and boom, out comes this lightning network QR code. Millions of apps can scan it. If you're super privacy oriented, you could build your own wallet that has like a pink privacy logo on it for yourself. You scan it. No matter how the money comes in, it converts, dispatches the dollars to the to the uh, merchant who's selling pupusas. And then the Bitcoin goes to the reserves of the country. And that's the idea and the concept and the design. All right, Jack. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to break some news here with us. I got a couple questions. So okay. I, I read somewhere that El Salvador's Monetary Authority, which, by the way, I have no idea what they do. If they're on the U.S. dollar and the Bitcoin, they have meetings. I don't know what they talk about. They seem to have no power. But anyway, that they have $3 billion in reserves. Why don't they buy some Bitcoin, right? A $300 million slug of Bitcoin. Are they going to, should we try to convince the president? Can we DM them? Can you DM them right now and tell them, hey, man, like buy some Bitcoin, you know, you can hook them up with, you know, Ross Stevens and you can buy it at Nidig or wherever, you know, um, you, you know, anything to share on that. And, and before you answer, remember, there's no insider trading in Bitcoin. Yeah, no. Uh, listen, um, I, I, like I didn't write the bill. I talked with the government and the president writes and signs the bill. That's how the bill works. I don't, I'm not speaking on behalf of the government. Uh, if they want to talk about their reserves plans, they should. Uh, I can say this, though, and I would advise this if I were asked. Um, I wouldn't be public about my reserve plans until I was confident I had acquired what I wanted to acquire. Um, I don't want the market pricing in anything. So uh, that would be the advice I would give. Um, I wouldn't make my reserve plans public and known, it's a disadvantage uh, uh, unless it becomes an advantage, which maybe you're Michael Saylor and you buy a billion dollars first and then you announce it. Uh, so that would be my advice if I were asked to give advice, but uh, I'm not the president and so I'm not going to speak on his behalf. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, so where are you traveling to next? I mean, I think I'm going to want to get in touch with Google's like location tracker for Jack Mahler because I know there'll be something interesting going on there. Obviously, there's been there have been a bunch of uh, legislators legislators in various nations in Central and South America who have indicated they want to do likewise. I'm going to date myself, but I think a lot of our audience will remember when I was a kid. There was this thing called Schoolhouse Rock, and it was this tune about I'm a bill. I'm only a bill. I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill about the sort of the challenges of a bill getting passed to law. There are certain times, even in U.S. history, like during the Johnson administration, where you have a Democratic president with a supermajority in Congress, you can pretty much bang things through, which is what we had in El Salvador. Not the case in most nations, generally not the case in the United States. Um, any insights? I, mean, I imagine people are reaching out to you um, in, in, in other countries. Um, yeah. Um, 
listen, like I actually told my team the following Monday after the announcement, like this is no mistake. Uh, this is not an accident. This is not a one-off event. This is not something to be celebrated and forgotten about for us as a company. This is what we do. This is our mission statement of enabling economic freedom and economic empowerment. And we do that through open monetary networks that are Bitcoin and Lightning, providing a tremendous experience on top of them. And so we've enabled that for Russell Okun as an NFL player. We're talking to the NFL. We're talking to NASCAR. We did that with the Indy 500 folks. And we're talking to more countries. Um, it's just what we do. And so we're going to continue to do what we do. We're going to continue to be the best at what we do. And so, yeah, a blanketed answer is absolutely uh, there's more to come um, because I haven't economically empowered all 8 billion people yet. And so this is a tremendous milestone. I'm super proud of everyone that was part of it and uh, the small role I played. But uh, no, we keep going. We keep going. We have a mission statement and it's far from finished. So so if I was a bookie, I just had betting odds on what country was going to be next. Right. So I, I would make the odds around other dollarized nations like Panama, Ecuador. Just curious, what nation would you, what would be your favorite? Well, you're a smart guy, man. So maybe you should give yourself a little bit more credit. But uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Like, keep in mind, this was a tremendously long journey that I was on. Uh, Well, I guess both. It was it was very short in that the last 90 days felt like it was yesterday. Um, But it was long and that like 90 individual days ticked off the calendar. So where are we 90 days from now? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm I'm extremely inspired and enthused by the reaction that uh, a lot of the developing world, Central America, Latin America, and just globally, I think this announcement was received fantastically. It wasn't clear at the time, such a geopolitical announcement from a 27-year-old in a hoodie, Um, but I'm fired up and uh, I'm ready to get to work and uh, we'll see. I I carry no bias. I'm willing to help anybody, whether you're a papusa salesman or a president of a country. we, we've got tools for you. All right, I have one more question. I'm going to let John ask a few. So, you know, you mentioned that you've uh, facilitated uh, an NFL player getting paid in Bitcoin. Um, we'd love to pay our employees in Bitcoin. Is that something you could help us with? Like, wh- where is that from a rollout standpoint? Was that a one-off kind of thing? Or is it ready to be sort of productized or institutionalized? Could we do that? In other words, is that something we could do together? Yeah. So this is being recorded on what is Thursday, June 17th. So uh, this time next week, I will have made a big announcement uh, that should inform you more on the answer, but absolutely. And in fact, the product is designed to be in the hands of the consumer. Uh, It's a direct deposit product where the consumer can actually decide what percentage of their paycheck uh, is automatically converted and stored to Bitcoin for them. Uh, And so I think that if you have capital that isn't working capital, that isn't capital required for your basic functions of living, uh, it is fact that you can't store it in cash. And so what are your options, right? And and if you think about the Federal Reserve um, or anyone in debt, anyone in debt has two options typically, unless you're the Federal Reserve. Your options are one, pay it back like an honest man, or two, default on it and admit that you made a mistake. The third, if you're the Federal Reserve, is to just keep printing money and print assets out of reach. And uh, so that, by definition, has to happen. And so you should store your wealth in an asset that's designed to appreciate against that environment. And, you know, Bitcoin, I'm like selecting like uh, fighters in a video game. It's like a cheat code. Um, And so I think every consumer, whether you're an NFL player, whether you work at Salt, uh, should be able to go into an application 
and slide what percentage of their direct deposit and their paycheck and their wage of living uh, is allocated to an asset that acts in their best interest. And so we'll wait for the announcement next week. All right. You know, I, if I was in a different mood, I'd really hammer you on it and tell, and tell you that we'd embargo this and, and make news together. But, you know, um, you know, given all the good work you've done, I'm, I'm not going to put that pressure on you. John, you want to ask a few questions to Jack before we let him get back to it? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, a country like El Salvador and other countries in LATAM and around the world, the reason they go to a dollar peg or they use the dollar as their currency is because there's a complete, complete loss in confidence in the local currency. Um, and so in El Salvador, obviously, the big challenge is going to be to uh, convince the El Salvadorian people that Bitcoin or using the Bitcoin network for remittance for an a internal payment network uh, should engender confidence. Uh, something like 70% of El Salvadorians, I think I saw the stat, don't have a bank account. Less than half have access to the internet. Uh, how far along, I know it's very early since you guys made the announcement, but are you in and what are the indications are about uh, how the El Salvadorian people are receiving this announcement and how many of them are planning to use it? I know the government has set up some you know, referral programs and things like that to get people on the network. And how much do you think it could incentivize you know, the growth of the El Salvadorian economy and society to you know, more people to have cell phones, more access to the Internet, things like that? Yeah, well, I mean, it, let's say we solve or drastically improve the remittance scenario in El Salvador, we're talking about improving the country's GDP by one to 5%. So that's very material. Uh, and so I think it's going to do tremendous things almost immediately to the country uh, outside of what it's already done. I mean, the amount of jobs created, the amount of investment that's coming into the country is fantastic. Uh, reception of the people, listen, politics is very complicated and I'm no politician. That's the job of the president to manage expectations and uh, the lives of its citizens. And I think the only thing that I'm confident in as someone who builds software and someone who builds experiences for consumers is that time cures all and uh, we just have code to write. Uh, and so I have nothing but confidence uh, in our ability to deliver economic inclusivity and financial freedom to the people of El Salvador, improve on those qualities uh, and give financial access to the 70 plus percent that don't have it and to the 30 percent that do may have it drastically improved in its quality. And so there's no doubt in my mind, I have ultimate confidence and I know the president will give access to information and transparency to relieve a lot of the, the stress and confusion that may be caused. Um, but politics are politics and ultimately time is, is the truth teller. Yeah, um, there was a lot written in the wake of El Salvador's announcement and the passage of the bill around what are the global implications from a legal standpoint uh, of a country making Bitcoin legal tender? Does it have to be recognized differently now in countries uh, that El Salvador trades with or, or conducts business with? What, in your view, are the implications, you know, both literal implications about how Bitcoin has to be treated now internationally and, and what it does around the world to encourage other countries to potentially adopt similar types of models? Yeah, so for the legal implications, uh, you know, I've seen some interesting threads around how the World Bank now has to accept Bitcoin uh, as El Salvador's made it legal tender. I'm, I'm curious, uh, more curious than a participant to see how that unfolds. Uh, the way I view it is that we are in unprecedented uh, environment for macroeconomics right now. The monetary expansion happening at all central banks and in particular the Federal Reserve should scare everyone, no matter if you're in New York, Chicago, or El Salvador. Uh, and you see a country that opts out, uh, that plugs into hope, 
plugs into an open network, plugs into a monetary policy that cannot be co-opted by any individual that doesn't have a CEO and that's protected by software that's incorruptible and that is defended by a distributed network. Uh, and that is a very inspiring thing to see and to witness and to understand that there are other options. In fact, there's an option that's engineered to fix this exact problem. And so I think now every single country in the world, especially those that are dollarized, especially those that are developing, but no matter who you are, you have to start to entertain the concept that Bitcoin has given financial inclusion, basic human freedoms and hope and solved a long outdated problem of subscribing to a monetary policy that cannot be changed that is fixed, set in stone, and an asset that supply is capped and that achieves ultimate scarcity. Um, and a country has has done that and plugged into that uh, and sees a better world with that. Uh, and I think that's going to kick off uh, what I hope to be a new epoch for humanity. Uh, I think we have a better world with Bitcoin in it and Bitcoin's engineered to solve these problems and uh, a lot of confidence it's going to fix it. So last question before we let you go. Um, you talked earlier about how you've built technology. The Lightning Network has been built, uh, Strike has been built to be a technology that operates and solves problems irrespective of the price of Bitcoin or whether somebody embraces Bitcoin as a currency or a store of value or whatever they perceive it as. But you know, you're a fan of Bitcoin. Brett is definitely a fan of Bitcoin. Uh, I'm a fan of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is volatile. You know, I, If I was getting paid uh, from Skybridge or Salt uh, two months ago in Bitcoin, I would have been a lot happier than I would be, uh, you know, today having that that money having sort of halved in value. Um, do you think Bitcoin as an asset is on a path? And we talk about this a lot, uh, Brett and I, about you know volatility is your friend really with Bitcoin because that's what's created so much, uh, you know, uh, price appreciation. Is most of the volatility has been to the upside. But do you think Bitcoin is on a path to? being less volatile to being perceived as more of a currency that you know people in El Salvador or elsewhere might be able to have more confidence in it long term that it'll be somewhat more stable? Yes, of course. Bitcoin's volatility metrics are going down by the day. They always have been uh, as it's maturing as an asset and maturing in its participants, maturing in those who subscribe to it and hold it, maturing in its volatility characteristics, uh, and it will continue to do so. However, I still think there's a tremendous amount of volatility to the upside, which then implies some short-term volatility to the downside. I mean, markets act on nobody's behalf. Markets are their own beast and their own freak of nature. Uh, and so I don't think we're near close. What is, you know, Bitcoin is around a trillion dollar asset. Uh, considering, you know, how the world traditionally stores wealth, there's a lot more to go to the upside. Uh, and so I still think that, you know, we're relatively early. Uh, and so I wouldn't price out any volatility for these next market cycles. I think it's got to go up a lot, which infers it'll go down a little and then continue. Uh, but I mean, you can look at all the metrics you want and this thing's maturing tremendously fast considering it started a little over a decade ago. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Hey Jack, one, right. one, let me throw in one last question before we wrap, John. Jack, how, how do you, what do you, what do you, believe is the number of people in the world that own Bitcoin and, and how do you calculate that number? Like what, what, what are your data inputs? Well, yeah. Like what's a Bitcoin user? That's the long dated question. Um, gosh, uh, I wouldn't have any clue for owning Bitcoin. I, I would associate with being long the asset. I think someone with a Coinbase account that owns, owns Bitcoin on the platform is an, is an owner of the asset. 
Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of nuance in that question and a lot of context that needs to be provided to give an accurate answer. Uh, but I guess a lot. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if it's people that literally hold UTXOs and private keys, lesser than. If it's people that are subscribed to funds and cash settled derivative products and are on platforms like Coinbase and Robinhood, then a lot. Um, but I, I know the number keeps going up and to the right. So that's why I'm a fan. Right. Well, that seems like a good place to end, John. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jack, we'd right. love to have I'm you. It's not uh, going to get better than up and to the right. <laughs> yeah. uh, up and to the right is fantastic. But uh, Jack, it's a pleasure to have you on. We'd love to have you at our, our SALT conference this September uh, in New York. It's going to have you know all, all the big players uh, in the world of Bitcoin and digital assets. You know, It's something that the SALT conference has evolved since it was started 12 years ago, and it's going to increasingly have uh, you know, content and participants uh, that are doing great things in this space. So we'd love to have you there um, and, and hope to see you down at Bitcoin Beach. That sounds like the place to be. You should definitely visit Bitcoin Beach. Shout out to Bitcoin Beach and all the people that have made this a reality. And I'd love to come. I appreciate you both. Thanks for having me. I think you do tremendous work for uh, the community and for the asset. And uh, let's go Bitcoin. All right. Uh, let's go Bitcoin. Uh, thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk as well and learning more about what's going on uh, with the Lightning Network, with Strike, uh, sort of this global evolution of Bitcoin. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website. It's salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. And please spread the word about uh, these Salt Talks. We love educating people on, on topics, whether you're deep into Bitcoin and just learning about uh, you know, more in depth what's going on in El Salvador or looking to learn more about the space. Uh, please tell your uncle that's skeptical about crypto. Uh, please send him this Salt Talk. We're also on Twitter at Salt Conference is where we're most active, uh, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And on behalf of Brett and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.